This is a talk on the providence of God with John Calvin. I've wanted for a little while to do something on the doctrine of providence for three reasons. Firstly, at Bible by the Beach in 2019, Mark Pickles did three quite wonderful talks on this doctrine under the title of God of the Everyday. If, if you were able to get your hands on them, I would really recommend that you did so and listen to them. They are very, very helpful. And this will be, in some senses, just a shorter version. Secondly, um, I'm aware that safety is a huge idol in our culture. Coronavirus has sort of brought this out, uh, but it was always there. You know, at camp, it was a legal requirement to write risk assessments for all sorts of things, even things like playing tiddlywinks. But, but it's not only infiltrated our government, it's infiltrated our churches and my life. And I just say it in a number of ways. I, I'm scared to take criticism. So I take, scared to take responsibility for my family, my sin, for trying new things, because it's the easiest way to stay safe from criticism. I'm scared to give more sacrificially because I want to stay safe financially. I'm scared to speak more boldly of Jesus and, and hot button sins because I want to stay safe relationally. I'm scared to think about going to those peoples all over the world who've never heard, who are living, dying without ever hearing about Jesus because I want to stay safe physically. And it's a disaster because the Lord Jesus requires of us to risk our lives for him in the gospel. He calls us not to try and save our lives, but to lose our lives for him. We will not be able to do that if we idolize safety. The great irony of idolizing safety, according to Jesus, is that it is the most unsafe thing we can do. We will lose our lives if we do so. And so we must overcome this idol. And perhaps there is no doctrine more helpful than the doctrine of providence for Christians in this battle. And thirdly, and sort of relatedly, this is a hugely comforting doctrine in suffering. I'm going to continue in the series of learning from theologians from the past, and, and today we're going to be hearing from John Calvin on this. In chapters 16 to 18 in book one of his institutes, Calvin teaches on the topic. We're going to think about this under two headings. This uh, relates to the first two chapters. Firstly, what is the doctrine of providence? And then secondly, what are its use, uses? So firstly, what is the doctrine of providence? The Heidelberg Catechism is a good place to start. It seems to be, to be a summary of Calvin's teaching and it gives the following definition. What do you understand by the providence of God? Question, answer. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barrenness, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Let me let Calvin expand that for us. Firstly, it is an extension of the doctrine of God as creator. Calvin says fundamentally the doctrine of God's providence is an extension of the doctrine of him as creator. He writes, to make God a momentary creator who once for all finished his work would be cold and barren. And we must differ from profane men especially in that we see the presence of divine power shining as much in the continuing state of the universe as its inception. In other words, the doctrine of providence tells us that God is as actively and as powerfully involved in this world now as when he made it. 
Faith, he writes, ought to penetrate more deeply, namely, having found him creator of all, then to also conclude that he is everlasting governor and preserver. Not only that he maintains the natural laws of the universe, but also in that he sustains, nourishes and cares for everything he has made, even to the least sparrow, which is picking up on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. And secondly, to put it the other way around, to believe in the doctrine of providence is to believe nothing ever happens by chance. Calvin writes, suppose a man falls among thieves or wild beasts, is shipwrecked at sea by a sudden gale, is killed by a falling house or tree. Suppose another man wandering through the desert finds help in his trouble, having been tossed by the waves, reaches harbour, miraculously escapes death by a hair's breadth. Natural reason ascribes all such happenings, whether prosperous or adverse, to fortune. But anyone who has been taught by Christ's lips, who says that even the very hairs of our head are numbered, will look further afield for a cause and will consider that all events, whether good or bad, are governed by God's secret plan. That's where that line comes from in the definition. Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barrenness, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Mark Pickles brought this out in a lovely way going through Esther. It's, he said, you will notice in the book of Esther that God is not mentioned once. But what you find throughout the book is there is this coincidence and then there's another coincidence and then there's another coincidence and it goes on and on and on. And by chapter four, you're thinking this is ridiculous. And the point is the absent God is present everywhere and nothing happens by chance. He's ruling over everything and everyone. So that's the, the potted summary of the doctrine of uh, providence. L let, me, uh, let, me give let me let Calvin give us five further things to sort of flesh it out a bit. So firstly, God's providence especially relates to man and even more especially relates to the church. So he writes, because it's an extension of the, the doctrine of creation, well, God, he writes, created the universe, especially for the sake of mankind. And so if the providence is an extension of that, so we ought to look for this purpose in his governance. Therefore, his providence strives to the end that God may reveal his concern for the whole human race. And we, we see this in Acts, don't we? Acts 17. He determines the boundaries of all peoples and at all places in all times. And how does he do it? That they might seek him and reach out to him and perhaps find him. But then he writes, God's providence even more especially relates to his ruling of the church, which he deigns to watch more closely. And he says, there are many and very, very many and very clear promises that testify that God's singular providence watches over the welfare of believers. And he gives a few of them. Cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Psalm 55. He who dwells in the help of the Most High will abide in the protection of the Almighty. Psalm 91. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Zechariah 2. I will contend with those who contend with you. Isaiah 49. Even though a mother may forget her children, I will never forget you. Isaiah 49 again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of them that love him, who've been called according to his purpose, which is the most famous from Romans 8:28. Secondly, God's providence is the determinative principle of all things, but that sometimes it works through an intermediary, sometimes without and sometimes contrary to every intermediary. Now, you may be thinking, what does that mean? Let, let, me, let me explain. He's saying God decides everything that happens. God's providence is the determinative principle. 
He chooses absolutely everything that is going to happen. He has foreordained it from before the creation of the world. But normally he uses means, like the normal means of God making someone better if they're sick is getting them to hospital. That's the normal means. And he uses an intermediary that he uses, the, the doctors, the nurses, uh, all the people who support that. He uses intermediaries. But that's normally what he does. But sometimes he works without an intermediary. Sometimes God snaps his fingers and he makes someone's better. And sometimes he works contrary to every intermediary. Sometimes he makes people well when other people are trying to harm them. Well, then that's the story of Joseph, isn't it? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So God decides everything. He, his providence determines everything. But he uses means normally, but sometimes he doesn't. Uh, I hope that makes some, some sort of sense. Thirdly, God's providence does not excuse us of prudence. So if God's sovereign, he's decided everything that's going to happen to me. Why, why do I have to bother looking after myself? Well, for he who set the limits of our life has at the same time entrusted to us its care. So one of the things he's provided us with is the mind and the means to be aware of what's good for us, what's, what would help us preserve our lives. If he's given us, therefore, the duty of preserving our lives, it's entrusted to us its care, it's very clear what our duty is. If the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it where it is right to do so. And Jesus changes that. Where we naturally think it's right to be prudent, Jesus, in many ways, is calling us to be the opposite. But, but Calvin writes, nonetheless, if God offers you help, use it. If he warns you of, a dan of danger, don't run into it. This is Paul, right? He was warned of danger and he escapes from a city sometimes. And then other times he runs straight into danger because he knows God commands it. If he makes remedies available, don't neglect them. If, you're, if you've got a headache... It's fine to take a paracetamol. In other words, God's providence does not stop us using common sense. Be wise, but not in a way that's disobedient. Fourthly, God's providence does not relieve us of responsibility. Now, this is the big one. If, if you've ever thought about providence, or I guess it's often called the sovereignty of God, you have probably bumped into this question. If God is sovereign over everything that happens to me, and not only everything that happens to me, but everything I do, if he decides everything I do, how can I be held responsible? Now, let me give you a potted answer to what Calvin says. He actually has a whole chapter on this. But I think his, his, his answer boils down to three main headings. I, I may be wrong about this, but I think there's three main things. Firstly... God does bind evil to his will, but in the action, both God and man act, but we, they act with different purposes. Let me go through them. Firstly, God binds evil to his will. Calvin writes, I grant, thieves and murderers and other evildoers are the instruments of God's providence, and the Lord himself uses these to carry out the judgments that he has determined with himself. So in other words, the really tricky bit is with evil, right? This question. And straight out, he wants to say he rules over evil. And this is utterly crucial. If people are free from being governed by God's providence when they are evil, then we have no hope. It's like God is in control unless something bad happens to you. Well, how's that comforting? It's not comforting at all. 
It's like saying the devil is not on a leash, but, but Job teaches us he is. God binds evil to his will, and, and Calvin will give no ground there. But secondly, he says, in the one action, both God and man act. And he illustrates this with Pharaoh in Exodus. The, the Bible tells us that both God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Calvin writes, though we cannot see how these two statements perfectly agree, in diverse ways, man, while he is acted upon by God, at the same time acts. So we really do do what we do. And if it's evil, we do evil. But, thirdly, we cannot blame God. Why? Will, and this is talking about an evildoer here, Will they invoke God in the same iniquity with themselves? Or will they cloak their own depravity with his justice? They can't do either. In their own conscience, they are so convicted that they are unable to clear themselves. In themselves, they so discover evil, but in him only the lawful use of their evil intent. What he's saying here is if... If we do something evil, we look in ourselves and we feel guilty for the terrible things we've done wrong. And if we will go to a, go to a law court, pleading the providence of God will not help us because we have truly done what we have done and we've done it with evil intent if what we've done is evil. But he is cleared of guilt. God is cleared of guilt because he uses our evil intent to bring about just and loving purposes again this is the story of joseph his brothers in jealousy and hatred sought to destroy joseph and they were guilty and they felt guilty but god in that action had a different purpose what you purpose for evil god purposed for good in that action he did good things and saved many lives and this is the story of course most um, poignantly of the Lord Jesus. Acts 2.23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And in that sentence you have all three of those things. You see God bound evil to his will. He planned for this to happen. It was it happened according to his plan and foreknowledge. But secondly, both God and man acted in the one action. It was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. But this man was handed over to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. But thirdly, what they purposed for evil, God purposed to good, for the saving of these very people who were guilty of murdering a son of God. So there's a little potted answer to um, the question of God's uh, sovereignty and uh, human responsibility. Uh, but finally, we... We cannot always, this is sort of the fifth little uh, addendum to, those, to the, the, the definition of providence, sorry, I should say. We've been on a digression. We're coming back now. Finally, we cannot always discern God's precise purpose. And this is very important. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but what is written belongs to you and your children forever. We don't always know exactly why God is doing what he's doing in our lives. We don't always know the good purposes, the loving and just purposes that is causing God and his providence to cause what's happening now to happen to us. But what we do know is that he is working for our good 
if we're believers and for his glory. And so we come to the use of this doctrine. And this can be summed up in one of Calvin's sentences. Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things. Patience in adversity. And also incredible free from worry about the future. About the future all necessarily follow upon this knowledge which is what the Heidelberg Catechism picks up on. Again, let me read you that one. Question, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Let me break that down. Firstly, thankful in prosperity. Therefore, Calvin writes, whatever shall happen prosperously and according to the desire of the heart, God's servant will attribute wholly to God, whether he feels God's kindness through the ministry of men or has been helped by inanimate creatures. For thus he will reason, if people are kind, surely it is the Lord who has inclined their hearts to me, who has so bound them to me that they should become the instruments of his kindness towards me. Like, you know, uh, it, was my, it was my birthday a couple of weeks back and uh, the people who gave me gifts, that's what he's saying, I, I should see those gifts as coming from God and be thankful and thankful to the people who gave them because they have become to me ministers of divine goodness. Calvin writes, so we will not pass over them as if they deserve no thanks. No, because they, they're responsible. It, what They acted. And so we should feel beholden to them from the bottom of our hearts. Secondly, patience in adversity. If anything adverse happens, straight away the servant of God will raise up his heart here also unto God, whose hand can best impress patience and peaceful moderation of mind upon us. If Joseph had stopped to dwell on his brother's treachery, he would never have been able to show a brotherly attitude towards them. But since he turned his thoughts to the Lord, he inclined to gentleness and kindness because he reasoned, this is from my father's hand and therefore must be for my good. When we are unjustly wounded by men, let us overlook, I think what um, Calvin is saying here is that let's look above their wickedness and, and learn to believe for certain that whatever our enemy has wickedly committed against us was permitted and sent by just dispensation. When dense clouds darken the sky and a violent tempest arises because a gloomy mist is cast over our eyes, thunder strikes our ears and all our senses are numbed with fright. Let us infer that while the disturbances in the world deprive us of judgment, we, we cannot see what is going on. We cannot understand why God is doing what he's doing. Why are you doing this, O oh Lord? Let's remember that God out of the pure light of his justice and wisdom, tempers and directs these very dark movements in the best conceived order to a right end. And the point of all that is when we're going through suffering, what we need to do is we need to look to God and look to the end. We need to look to God that he is the one who's doing all that's happening to us. And he is doing it for the end that we might be like Christ, for the end that we might be with him in heaven, to do us ultimate good rather than immediate good. And that is why Calvin says we learn patience. 
because patience is waiting in the middle for the ultimate when we're stuck in the immediate. And to help us here, uh, Calvin just reinforces this advice of looking above. He says, there's a, there's a really good line. He says, therefore, no one will weigh God's providence properly and profitably, but him who considers that he that his business is with his maker and the frame of the universe and with becoming humility submits himself. I was um, listening to a sermon and uh, the preacher quoted a man called Joseph Sohn. Uh, Joseph Sohn, some of you might have heard of him, was a Romanian pastor and preacher who was heavily persecuted for his faith. He was regularly arrested, he was tortured he had a high view of God's providence and he recorded that once he was being interrogated by six men and he said this to them. He said, what is happening here is not between you and me. It is between my God and me. The interrogators turned to him and said, what do you mean? And so said, my God is teaching me a lesson through you. I don't know what it is. Maybe he's teaching me several. I only know, sirs, that what you are doing to me you are doing to me only what God wants you to do and you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my Lord. And so I said, every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. Maybe you're getting all sorts of stick at work for being a Christian. Or maybe you're fed up of lockdown and stuck at home. Maybe the children are being really difficult. Maybe you're up in the night in pain. Maybe you have lost your job and wondering where the money's going to come from. Maybe you've been longing to get married and you can't. Maybe your marriage is really difficult at the moment. Maybe your family's sick and you can't see them. Maybe, you, maybe you're facing all sorts of struggles and people are being horrible to you. Calvin and Cern would say it is not chance. God is doing business with you. I do not know. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he's teaching me several. I only know, sirs, that you're only doing to me what God wants you to do and you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my Lord. How do you cope when things are really, really hard? You look above to God. And you submit yourself to his will. God has decided this, this exact situation is the best thing in the world for me. Now, I will be patient. And it also helps us take risks for the gospel. This doctrine of providence. When Christ declared that not even a tiny sparrow of little worth falls to the earth apart from our Father's will. He wants us to realise that God watches over us with all the closer care and he extends it so far that we may trust that the hairs of our head are numbered. What more could we wish for ourselves if not even one hair can fall from our head apart from his will? This is how the doctrine of providence defeats the idol of safety. The staggering reality is that when we try to save our lives rather than giving to the Lord Jesus, we are not safe no matter how much money we have in the bank, no matter how much people like us, how respected we are in the community, no matter how secure our job is, how comfortable we are at home. But if we lose our lives for him and the gospel, 
we are so safe as to be sure that not even one hair will fall from our head apart from what will be for our greatest good and God's greatest glory. And so we can learn to risk our lives for Jesus. Let me end this talk with uh, how Calvin does. He says, without certainty about God's providence, life would be unbearable. Innumerable are the evils that beset human life. Innumerable, too, are the deaths that threaten it. Embark upon a ship, you are one step away from death. Mount a horse. If one foot slips, your life is imperiled. Go through the streets, you are as subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. Your house threatens in the daytime to impoverish you, at night to collapse upon you. Your field is exposed to hail, frost, drought and other calamities. I pass over poisonings, ambushes, robberies, open violence. Amid these tribulations, must not man be most miserable but half alive in life, as if the sword perpetually hangs over his neck? Yet, when the light of divine providence has once shone upon a godly man, he is then relieved and set free, not only from extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing him before, but from every care, his solace is, I say, to know that his heavenly Father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority, so governs by his wisdom, that nothing can befall him except he determines it. And so he can say, the Lord is my helper, who shall I fear? <laughs>